Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at innovation and the cloud. How the cloud can help companies in their quest for radical innovation. Industries and verticals that are the most ripe for disruption based on advancements in cloud computing. And how the cloud and the Internet of Things will combine to change the world as we know it. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Dr. Timothy Chow. Dr. Chow has been a pioneer in the cloud computing world for the better part of two decades. From 1999 to 2005, he served as president of Oracle On Demand, the fastest growing business inside Oracle at the time. Dr. Chow is the author of two books on cloud computing, Cloud, Seven Clear Business Models, and The End of Software, transforming your business for the on-demand future. He has appeared in numerous publications, including Forbes, Business Week, The Economist, and The New York Times, as well as on CNBC and NPR. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Chow. Well, thank you. So, Good to be with you today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for, for joining us all the way from California. So, the cloud is something that we all hear a lot about these days, along with trends like big data and the Internet of Things. What opportunities does the cloud afford companies that they didn't have maybe 10 or 15 years ago? Yeah, I think, you know, when we use that word, uh, we in the industry always overload words because we keep repeating them. Uh, so maybe let me first start by saying I think it's useful to kind of talk about the implications to, to businesses. Um, I like to say uh, that you should start with uh, consumer application cloud services. So that's Twitter, Facebook, eBay, your favorite banking website. Uh, you know, we, this is the way in which we get consumer applications these days. It uh, didn't always used to be this way. Once upon a time, we used to, uh, you know, get software and put it on our computers and manage it and all that. I'll stop and tell a little story. It's about a year ago, one of my Stanford kids that she needed to understand cloud computing, and uh, we sat down at breakfast. I started out the conversation the same way, you know. Uh, we, we are all using consumer application cloud services. Didn't always used to be this way. We used to get software and install it and everything, and she stops me. She goes, oh, I've heard of this idea. It's called a floppy disk. <laughs> and I go, yeah. <laughs> We all forget, but once upon a time, whether it was tax software or operating systems or, or, or mail or whatever, right, but all that software we got on floppy disk and installed it and had to manage it, upgrades and all that, and nobody does that anymore, right? I mean, we're completely over on the other side of the fence. So I think there, you know, it's just, uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of examples that anyone listening can, can easily think of. I think the area that people aren't as aware of is a similar movement has happened for business applications. So what I, I'm talking about business applications, I'm talking about you know everything from HR, financial, purchasing, et cetera, types of applications. And starting really uh, in late 99, early 2000, pretty much every business application software company who made a public offering, and that included companies like Concur, and right now technologies and Taleo and success factors and, and Salesforce and WebEx, all these companies that were delivering business applications were all delivered as a cloud service. I mean, that was the default. Mm -hmm. 
And pretty much today, every business application software company has either acquired, including Oracle and SAP, some of these so-called born-in-the-cloud applications, as well as all the brand-new applications that have been coming out over the past 10, 15 years in business software are all uh, application cloud services. So I, I think there, um, while there's a whole legacy that we could discuss, uh, but I think uh, for at least many of the CIOs I spend time talking to, everybody's pretty much agreed that the next generation is really going to be all delivered to the cloud service. Now, why? You know, you could say, well, why are people interested in this? Well, you know, it's a maybe a dirty secret or maybe it's a well-known secret that the cost of managing applications is four times the purchase price of an application per year minimum. So that means that at the end of the day, in four years, you're going to be spending 16 times the initial purchase price for an application to manage the security, the availability, the performance, the change in those applications. So, you know, your, your, your expenses are just multiplying by the, by the week, by the hour, by the day. And so the ability to now, in essence, allow the guy who's building the application to will think about it as they incur the cost, they solve the problems of how to make their applications more secure, more available, et cetera, then my cost as a consumer of a purchasing or CRM or an ERP application goes down dramatically. My ability to deploy goes up, you know, by orders of magnitude. Uh, so th this is why at the end of the day, and, you know, you can use your own experiences with consumer applications, why the model has moved completely over to the other side. I'll finish by just making a comment that I think some of your listeners should think about. The, the big movement right now is to a next generation of compute and storage cloud services. These services really are saying, you know, you no longer have to buy computers and buy storage, uh, stick them in cold rooms, manage the operating system instances, the load balancers, the routers, all that sort of stuff. Why don't you just buy the compute and the storage as a service? Obviously, Amazon's the most famous at doing this, but, you know, over time, we've had numbers of entrants, both from the large side of the field, you know, the Googles, the HPs, et cetera, as well as a number of innovative startups uh, all across the world. The reason why compute and storage is very interesting is applications only apply to a certain group of people, you know, whether I'm in HR or I'm in purchasing. But when I talk about compute and storage, it applies to everybody. And that's really why the movement there is, and we are, by the way, just at the beginning of this, uh, is game-changing in, in lots of different ways. And so I'll just stop there a little bit, Will. I, I tend to talk on. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're the perfect kind of person for this podcast then. So let me ask you a follow-up. You, you mentioned the innovative startups, and you mentioned that they're well-established companies. I assume innovative startups would be the boxes and the drop boxes of the world. Do you, see, do you see one company more than the other having inroads in the enterprise space or being kind of the preferred cloud provider of choice for companies throughout the U.S.? No, I, I would say things are still, and we, because you're not to Dropbox and Box, I think we're in the early days of how we're, the industry um, 
the, uh, the enterprise is thinking about compute and storage. Just let me give your listeners a sense of how early days we are. Last year, the industry sold 8 million computers and 28 million terabytes of disk. Okay? 8 million computers, 8 million servers, 28 million terabytes of disk. If all of that had been delivered as a cloud service, it would have been $341 billion worth of revenue. Now, if you think about it, that's last year. If this year we sold the same amount of compute and storage and the demand did not go up, which is probably not true, then this year that would have been $600 billion, over $600 billion. Well, you know, Amazon never releases their public numbers, but it's widely believed that, you know, they're at, you know, anywhere from two to four billion. So what did I just say? The opportunity that, you know, 100 times the amount of what a lot of people think of as the big dog in the, in the, uh, in the story. So we are still very, very early days. I mean, uh, companies are still procuring compute and storage in the old-fashioned way and putting them in computer rooms, et cetera, uh, both the United States and globally. Um, and, but we are, it's clear to me, I'll say, that we're at the same stage we were with client-server those many years ago. Uh, it's very early days, but it's obvious where this whole thing's going to end up. And uh, so I think there's opportunity for many players, you know, Box, Dropbox, et cetera, and, and more. Uh, that will emerge over the over the coming years to develop innovative applications, innovative solutions in both the compute and storage space. Okay, got it. So decreased hosting costs seem to be one of the most frequently cited ways that the cloud has leveled the playing field and is providing utility to a broad swath of companies. And and some of the service providers that I mentioned before, Box and, and Dropbox, are, are, I think, more cloud storage space than, than cloud and compute. You would know better than I would. I'm not super technical. But what are some other ways beyond simply storage that the cloud is being used to fuel innovation? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I think a lot of people, and, and obviously I, I talked about the statement that application cloud services, you know, CRM, ERP, et cetera, those are all have dramatically lower cost of management, and so the, the, the so-called cost of management mm-hmm. is certainly one aspect of why this is all very interesting. But, but, but let, me, let me get you thinking one more step, which is it's not just that. So many people don't think about it, but what Amazon introduced was really not technology. What they introduced was an innovative business model, right? Um, yes, it takes technology to do it and all that, but the innovation was a business model. And what was that? It was the ability to buy a computer for an hour for 12 cents and give it back, right? And that, that's, nobody's ever done that before, right? Mm-hmm. So um, let me now give you an example. So this is like, uh, about four years ago. I um, actually teach a class at Tsinghua University in Beijing on cloud computing. And so uh, I happen to know the guys at Amazon fairly well. And they, uh, they said, oh, here, take $3,000 worth of AWS time, and so I did, mm-hmm. showed up in class and said, well, I got $3,000 worth of time. Turns out the time at, in those days, $3,000 would buy you a small instance for three and a half years in Northern Virginia, Ireland, California, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So they all looked at me and they went, yeah, so what? 
<laughs> Which, you know, I agree. So what? You know, you could buy a computer in Beijing, put it underneath your desk for three and a half years. I mean, that's not really any news. I said, but $3,000 actually will buy you 10,000 computers for 30 minutes. Nobody's ever been given 10,000 computers for 30 minutes before, <laughs> for $3,000. Sure. So I, I want your listener to realize that what is really starting to happen here is that because the economic model has changed, is changing, has changed, is going down, as you've already talked about, by a factor of 10 from where we have been before, what is this going to do is it's going to open up whole new classes of applications we've never seen before, not because they were not technologically possible, but because they were economically not possible. And for those of your listeners who you know are old enough to remember the time we went from you know many computers and mainframes to the world of client server, by the way, I heard all the same things. I mean, people said, oh, you're never going to want to run on Unix because it's not reliable enough. You know, you're never going to want to run on Oracle database. It's not secure enough, right? And, and I just laugh because, by the way, that's what everybody right now is going, well, you're never going to want to run on the cloud. It's not secure enough. It's not reliable enough, right? And I go, you know, at the end of the day, and if you think about it, did people move to using Unix and Sun and Oracle, all that sort of stuff, which now we think of as enterprise computing, by the way, did they move to that because it was more technologically advanced than what was out there, which was big IBM mainframes? Was Unix more technologically advanced than MVS and VM and all that stuff? Was, you know, Oracle databases more technologically advanced than IMS and Kix and DB2 and all that sort of stuff? I'll give you the easy answer. The answer is no, it was not. Why did they do it? Well, they did it because it was a hell of a lot cheaper. And that's why in, in those days, you know, people got tired of waiting for IT to write a report on the big IBM mainframe. So they went and bought a little PC, paid $10,000 for it, but bought a little PC and, and got a VB programmer and they went at it, right? And departments bought little servers and, you know, got Oracle databases on it and built new, new apps on top of it. So what happened was because of economics, whole new applications got born, which you could never have done in the old world. And I, I would counsel your listeners to think that's really what's happening here. Yes, cloud computing is going to reduce the cost of what we do today, but that's not the big news. The big news is it's going to allow applications, and I let you think about well, what would you do with 10,000 computers for 30 minutes, right? That, that's the creative part of this conversation, right? <laughs> is, right, what what new things can I do, which I can never do before economically, and that's when you get the knee of the curve, right? That's when the explosion occurs. It's when you're doing things you could never do and not having this stupid conversation about, well, you know, how do I move my mainframe apps into the cloud, whatever that means, right? Sure. So, so on the thousands of computers for half an hour tip. Let me ask you about your latest book for a minute. It's called Cloud, Seven Clear Business Models. And that implies that the cloud is about much more than you know just storage or hosting. But without giving away the entire book, can you share the seven business models or some of them with listeners? Yeah. Um, really what, what I tried to do there with the business models is really try to help people understand 
uh, the world of software, which I've lived in for a lot of years from a business model perspective. And I'll state just for your listener to think about it, the one end, we have the classic enterprise application uh, business model where I license you software uh, for so many dollars per user, whatever, and then I charge you for support and maintenance, you know, 20, 22, 28% uh, of the initial license fee. That business model has borne all the big current players, whether that's, you know, Mother Oracle or SAP or Microsoft, et cetera. By the way, that support and maintenance stream is gargantuan in a lot of these situations and at enormous um, uh, margins. So it's a beautiful business model and one that's fueled an industry uh, quite well. Uh, at the other end, and I'll say what Model 7 is, is uh, maybe some people don't think of Google, Facebook, eBay, Twitter as uh, software companies, but if you go down to the Googleplex and walk around, all you see is a bunch of software engineers and a couple of guys selling ads. I mean, they are software companies. It's just they're, they have chosen to monetize their software not by directly charging you for anything, but by, you know, ads, obviously, in the Google case embedding it in the transaction, you know, PayPal, eBay, or as I like to think about it, embedding it in their business. So every time you buy a book at Amazon, you're in, a, in principle paying for the usage of the Amazon.com website. So these are two ends of the spectrum. There's six models in between, which are really all geared towards letting people, particularly from the world that we come from, the traditional enterprise world, think about how they're going to make the trip from the world they come from to the world that uh, clearly, as I've already stated, that we're going to end up in, which is there's no reason why any software is not uh, delivered as a as a service, as a cloud service. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense, and I think and I think brings some clarity to uh, to the title of your first book, which is the end of software transforming your business for the on demand future. So you're not necessarily portending the end of software, but the end of software as we know it, where you have gargantuan applications that you pay huge amounts uh, you know, each month in maintenance to, to keep up and, and make work the way you want to work. Yeah, I, I think, yes, that's exact. I mean, obviously the title was written provocatively, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. And I think at the time I wrote the book, which by the way is around 2002, 2003, and it's been quite a while, it was a little controversial whether or not this so-called new model uh, would at all work. And, you know, these days, you know, post uh, uh, you know, Workday and Salesforce and NetSuite and, and Kaleo and success factors and concur, I think it's a foregone. I think people right now go, well, that's no new news. Right. <laughs> but yeah. there was a day when people were debating this as much the same debate is occurring today with computing storage, by the way. Sure. We had uh, Shubhra Ali from Salesforce on not too long ago and doing research for that for that uh, podcast interview was eye-opening. Company started in 99 and their market cap these days hovers somewhere uh, around $34, $35 billion. So huge amounts of value creation in a very short period of time. Yeah. So let me ask you a little bit about the Internet of Things. One thing that you talk a good bit about is how the cloud will enable businesses to use information to change their relationship with their customers. So if we thought we were inundated with data already, just wait until the Internet of Things is here and every coffee mug and wall and plastic bottle is quote-unquote connected to the Internet. 
How is cloud adoption fueling the Internet of Things and vice versa? Yeah, so let, let me let me kind of start at the beginning and and get to Internet of, the Internet of Things. So I'll make an observation, which is the U.S. economy is basically 85 to 90 percent a service economy, meaning that we don't make a lot of money growing stuff, agriculture, and we don't make a lot of stuff, a lot of money making stuff, meaning manufacturing, right? So the service industry is, you know, healthcare and retail and software and financial services and education and, 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 right? Mm -hmm. um, so the question that I think your listeners ought to think about is, so what the hell is a service industry? What, what is the service business? What does service mean? And so some people think that, well, service is, you know, answering the phone nicely from Bangalore, right? Or service is, you know, I'm going to flip burgers at In-N-Out Burgers since I live in California, right? Um, and I go, no, I don't think so, right? I think, and I want you to hear this a couple times, service is the delivery of information personal and relevant to you. Service is the delivery of information personal and relevant to you. So think about it. If I walk into the concierge at the hotel and I say, yeah, I'm looking for a, you know, cheap Chinese place that serves great Hunan food that I can walk to, and uh, he sends me to the right place, that's great service. If I walk into my doctor's office and she says, you know, based on your lifestyle and your uh, DNA, uh, we really need to put you on Lipitor, right? That's service. Right? So let me now bring you in the world of software for, for a second and have your listener uh, imagine the Amazon.com website, right? So uh, if you actually logged into mine, what you'd see is the, uh, uh, all the books that it's trying to recommend to me are all uh, um, murder, mystery, and romance novels. Now, some people would say, well, Tim, you, you like romance novels. I go, well, the other answer is my wife uses my account. <laughs> <laughs> so what are they trying to do? They're, they're trying to deliver information personal and relevant to me, right? Mm -hmm. People like you read this book. People like you listen to this music, blah, 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 right? Sure. If I ask the question, where is the transaction processing engine on that website. Where is it on that page? Well, I'll tell you. It's in the upper right-hand corner. It's a little shopping cart. And I go, well, does the shopping cart have to operate at scale, reliably, with data integrity? Yeah, it does. Absolutely has to. How important is it? Well, not that important, right? I mean, just look at the amount of real estate it occupies. It's not very important. By the way, most of the industry has spent their lives working on the shopping cart, right? And I'll just point you at your favorite local banking website and say, if you logged in, Will, what are you going to see? I'm going to say you're going to see a big shopping cart. It's going to go, Will, you can move money from savings to checking, you can buy stock, you can sell a bond, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Does it at all say, well, people like you bought you know, Cisco stock today? Uh, people like you refinance their mortgage. People like you, I'm just using the people like you analog. Sure. No, it doesn't do any of that, right? Now, yeah. now, now, could it? Well, the answer is hell yeah, it could. A lot of people don't realize this, 
But the consumer internet that we all get to see, uh, you know, Google Bing, et cetera, let's just see, maybe 200, 500 terabytes. That's all it really is. Every company on the planet, and in fact, all the major financial institutions, they have thousands upon thousands of times of that amount of information already sitting there. We don't even have to talk about information coming off of water bottles, right? Right. <laughs> They've already got tons of this stuff sitting there. So the question you should ask yourself is, well, why the hell wouldn't they do this? Why, why can't they do this? And I, I like to say, well, they've been held hostage by the sequel monster, right? People laugh. I go, yeah. I said, so just for the fun of it, and some of your listeners might be somewhat technical, I'll, I'll say, well, let's pretend it's late in the late 90s, back to your earlier example, and I'm sitting in Silicon Valley, and I find a bunch of SQL engineers, and I go, guys, I have a brilliant business plan. We're going to do a startup where we index all the information on the Internet, and we're going to monetize it with ads. Mm-hmm. We're going to be billionaires. In fact, we're going to be lots of billionaires talking <laughs> about market capitalization, right? Right. Okay. What's my guess of what all you engineers are going to go do? Here's my guess. You're going to go and you're going to design a master global data schema to store all information on the planet in. The next thing you're going to do is write ETL and data cleansing tools to bring all information on the planet into the master global data schema. And the last thing you're going to do is write reports. Best place to camp in France, great places to eat Hunan food, right? Mm-hmm. And for anybody who at all understands what I just said, you're probably laughing going, well, that'd be a total waste of time. <laughs> you know, we would have not made billions. We would have spent billions trying to make this work. By the way, every corporation in the world is trying to make the same thing work right now and spending a crap load of money trying to do this. And I said, it's because, right, you're taking the complete wrong approach because if Google had done this, we would not know Google today. Instead, they use the new generations of technology. These technologies that some of your listeners may be familiar with, right, these are all been developed in the world of the consumer Internet, largely because, you know, back to service, is information personal and relevant to you? By the way, that's what Mother Google's trying to do every time you do a search, give you personal relevant information, stare at your Gmail account, and you can tell they're trying to deliver you personal relevant information. By the way, that's called an ad. <laughs> and our friends at Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, are all doing this. So there's a crap load of technology. Some people have heard of Hadoop and Naut and Lucene and Solar and Manga. I mean, you keep on going with this. There are tons of this stuff becoming that has been developed to crack this problem. The challenge for the enterprise is some of our problems are easier, some are harder. It's not identical to the problems that consumer guys have to face. But the challenge is how do we bring these consumer technologies, and this is the real meaning of consumerization of IT. This isn't, you know, whether you get to use Facebook at work, fine, you know, figure that out. This is the real trick is how do we bring some of these technologies which have been born over on this side of the fence into the world of the enterprise? And if we can do that, we can now deliver information personal and relevant, and whether that's coming from a bank Or, and I'll give your listeners an example, which I think everybody can understand, to think about 
what this will mean if I could actually do it. So everybody's, I think, somewhat familiar with 911 systems, right? So uh, let's assume that wherever you're sitting, there's a fire on the corner uh, of wherever you're sitting. Well, what would happen? Well, you'd call up 911. The 911 operator would say, oh, thanks for calling to him. Could you tell me about? And as you describe this fire, uh, he or she is typing into the dispatch system all the words that you're saying and then figuring out whether they're going to send a fire or ambulance, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Uh, by the way, if I called and, Will, you called uh, one minute later and there's only one dispatcher, you're put on hold, right, while they wait to listen to me. Mm-hmm. And that's the way the current system works. Now, just for the fun of it, and I actually did this little mental experiment in downtown Tucson, Arizona. If you looked at one square block of wherever you're sitting, there is a ton of data. Talk about Internet of Things. There's a ton of data, right? right. There's weather information. You may not be aware of it, but at nine different levels of elevation, there's actually weather information, temperature, humidity, wind speeds, etc. Almost Every major city, their intersections are instrumented. You actually know how many cars, the weight of the cars, how frequently the cars passed by, including myself that has seen the fire, has a cell phone. The cell phone has GPS information. It could actually shoot a video of the fire, could take still pictures of the fire. By the way, uh, each one of us could actually call or text, which actually doesn't work right now, but text you know, our observation of the fire, oh, it's moving to the south or whatever, right? And, you know, computers could take that and translate the text. If you walk inside the building, realize that everybody's been talking about smart buildings. There's tons of data sitting in there from CO2 sensors, carbon monoxide, temperature, blah, blah, blah. So I just, for the fun of it, as I said, I did a little mental experiment. In downtown Tucson, Arizona, in a one-square-block there is four terabytes of data coming out per hour right now. Four terabytes, right? Mm-hmm. Now think about this. If I could build a public safety application, which was a public safety service application, think about what I could do. What would be personal and relevant? Well, personal and relevant to me, the person sitting in the office might be, Tim, you know, in order to escape this fire, you need to go to the southwest corner, go down one set of stairs, and then get out through the left side of the building. Personal and relevant to me, the ambulance driver could be 6th Street is blocked. You need to take 7th to get to the fire. Personal and relevant to me, the firefighter could be, you know, a wind gust is about to arrive in two seconds. You better get the hell out of the way, right? I mean, any of you can do multiple examples of personal and relevant information. Now, just think about what I just said. Apply to the world of aviation, healthcare, financial services, retail, et cetera, et cetera. And now you are starting to see what is going to be the next major step. In fact, the guys at General Electric use the phrase industrial Internet because they don't want to talk about the consumer side. When everybody is talking about, oh, when my water bottle and refrigerator are instrumented, that's great. That's a great conversation. But when you realize that in every hospital, in every airline system, in every power generation system, in all of the industrial fabric of the world, there is increasingly, because we build computers smarter and cheaper all the time, we have network technologies, we can bring terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of information to bear. The question actually has nothing to do, and I oftentimes think it's not about the size of the data, the, the people use big data, that's 
realize, I just told you, the consumer internet is 500 terabytes. That doesn't sound too big to me, right? It's really how can we use technology to make meaning out of it to, to deliver information, which is personally relevant to me, whether that's I'm in the hospital and I'm the doctor, or I'm in the hospital, or I'm the patient. What does that mean? And I think that is, at this point in time, a crisis of creativity. We don't have the kids who understand enough of the technology and enough of the domain to really build this next generation. And I, I, the challenge I can put to your listener is go be students of what this stuff is, this next generation of technology, and start thinking about how it is I can now apply it to whether, as I said, I'm in the service industry and in financials and healthcare and education, et cetera, et cetera, to deliver information personal and relevant to the many me's, M-A-N-Y, not M-I-N-I, the many me's <laughs> that are out there, right? Great. So if there's one thing people take away from this podcast, service is the delivery of information personal and relevant to you. Exactly. And how do you do that using computers? We're in a very cool place to build a lot of really interesting things. Very nice. Well, Dr. Chow, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on today. Some great wisdom about cloud and how it's enabling the next generation of innovative products. Uh, really appreciate your time. You're welcome, Will. Thanks again to Dr. Timothy Chow for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode, where we're very excited to welcome back to the studio Three Pillars CEO David DeWolf for the 25th episode of the Innovation Engine podcast. We'll be talking with him about innovation and the future of software, how software is driving results in industries we never could have foreseen, the coming boom in the world of big data and how that will enable the next generation of smart products, and what some of the world's foremost thought leaders at the invite-only Fortune Brainstorm Tech Conference had to say about the future of software and much more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.